Good morning. This morning we have the, the privilege of reading a particular text in the Gospels that's referred to as the Transfiguration. It's a very important text. It was a text that was celebrated by the church early, through the church fathers. This was a huge impact on their lives and on the formation of their understanding of who Christ was. Uh, even Peter later in his writing comments about this time and he said, we're not we're not telling you these cleverly devised fables, but we were witnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And it was a direct reference to this particular text that we're reading. So let's, if you have a Bible, you may want to open it up or a smartphone. We're going to hang in this text. Just keep it open uh, because we'll refer to it several times in our talk. Luke chapter 9 is where we are and starting in verse 28. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, Jesus had just been talking about his death, uh, he took Peter and John and James. These were kind of his inner circle, and he would bring them with him at, 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 in different times in his ministry. He pulled these guys and took them with him, and they went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, something's going on. Two guys show up from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. They were biggies. They appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They're talking with him, speaking about his departure, about his death, which was about to bring to fulfillment uh, at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awakened, they saw what was going on, his glory and these two important dudes standing right next to him. It says, uh, the, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up some, these three shelters or kind of make like three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke says parenthetically, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> Little rebuke there. While he was speaking, Peter was still talking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is the Father's presence. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, and no one at that time, they didn't tell anyone what they had seen. Now, there's several things going on in this text that I just sort of want to point to that I hope will be helpful uh, as you're sort of figuring out how to say yes more, particularly in this season of Lent where we're making room for God. The first thing I think is just very cool, that Jesus is shining. <laughs> uh, it's said in verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became bright as the flash of lightning. In Mark's gospel, incidentally, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels they're referred to, all refer to this event. That's how important it is. And uh, it, Mark's rendition of this particular text, the parallel passage, reads this way. This is Mark 9 and 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up to the high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. We'll come to that word again in a minute. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's like a Tide commercial. <laughs> anyway. Uh, just side note. Uh, but the point is that something supernatural is going on here, right? Uh, the second thing uh, I wanted to point out from this text, I think is so interesting and important. 
And that is, notice what's going on with Peter and the crew. It says in verse 32, look at it. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Now, now here's, I mean, what were they doing? I mean, what were they up there to do? In verse 28, we had just read, after eight days, Jesus took Peter and James and John. They went up to the mountain to, to pray. And here they are, very sleepy. You remember at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looked at them and said, will you pray with me one hour? And what were they ending up doing? They were sleeping. See, now here's the point. Spiritual things like prayer can be very boring. There's nothing wrong with you if you get sleepy while you're praying or sleepy while you're reading the Bible. In fact, to be perfectly honest with you, boring is a big part of spirituality. That's why some people aren't very spiritual. Because they hate boredom. In fact, one of the challenges of the generation that's coming up right now is they have less, they, 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 they make less distinction between good and evil and more distinction between fun and boring. For them, it's not good and evil. It's just fun and boring. That's how they make decisions. Well, that's boring. That's fun. You are setting yourselves up to be soulless. You are setting yourselves up for spirituality to almost mean nothing to you. And for you to live in doubt and fear and zero power from God. Because the only way you're going to ever get apart from God is you have to have a high tolerance for boredom. It's true. My kids used to come to me when they were little and they say, Dad, I'm bored. I say, you do not know what a gift that is. <laughs> oh, they did not like that. <laughs> oh, you want to do it? Hey, son, listen. If you ever want to be spiritual, you're going to have to face boredom. Boredom is how you get it. It's, and that's not just true with spirituality. There's a lot of worthwhile stuff that's difficult. And you've got to press through the boredom and the repetition. Like, like if you want to stay healthy physically, you've got to do boring things, repetitive things, right? If you want to get in through a, a better career, you're going to have to go to school and sit in boring classes and read boring books and construct boring papers. <laughs> you, if you want it, I mean, if you say, well, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to do this. I just want to play. Well, you're going to just be, you're not going to be much, Right? If you want to uh, have a great marriage, you're going to have to live through boring. If you want to build a business, you've got to work through boring. That's just the way it is. But if you keep the prize in front of you, you know, that you're going to, going to do something with your life, that you want to be close to God, that you want to make a, a mark in the world, not leave a stain on the world, then you're going to be willing, you're going to have to step up. When you put the prize in front of you of spirituality, it brings peace which means things get ordered. It adds joy. Joy is that expectation of something good. It, it helps you overcome stuff that other people are defeated by. The scripture says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. See, I think God intentionally has spirituality be a little boring just to weed out the key sheeters. You know, those that only want the fluffy crusts, the easy stuff, right? <laughs> First Timothy 4 says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding a promise for the present life and the life to come. Now, one of the things that you can do, and this will help you, to deal with the boredom of spirituality. I mean, it's good to pray spontaneous prayers. Uh, you know, we love that as evangelicals. We just like to, you know, pray what's on our heart and just tell the Lord we love him or about our day. I mean, that's all good, but sometimes that lasts three minutes, Right? And, and if, you, even if you just do it again, you know, it can get really kind of dry. But one of the things I love to do is pray the scriptures. I mean, you can find as you're reading scripture or just reading books or something, there'll be little verses that stick out to you that are really pretty famous verses. 
that are really encouraging. I mean, and if you don't know where to start, go to the Christian bookstore and buy a little bread thing that has little verses in it. Do that. <laughs> Pull one out, you know. It's just like the lotto for God. <laughs> and you'll find cool verses. I mean, there's beautiful verses in the text. Here's a, one example. Some of you remember 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17. If any person is in Christ, they're a, a new creature. So you can take that and pray and pray a prayer like this. Um, uh, Lord, thank you that I am a new creation, created in Christ Jesus, that there are new things from God on the inside of me. And I'm open to you. Just praying into a promise is so cool. Or here's another one. This one's taken out of 2 John 2.12, which talks about our forgiveness, and, and also Romans 8.1 that talks about the fact we're not condemned. And, it's, and, and the prayer is, you know, thank you, Lord. I've been rescued from, or I'm forgiven, and I'm forever free from condemnation. I mean, just that thought, I'm forgiven. It, it captures your mind. Sometimes when you pray the scripture, it's, it's like ringing a bell. Remember, if you ever acknowledge, when a bell rings, it, it captures you and you focus on the, it's sort of a, that's why in, in services in ancient world, they did use bells because when they got to certain parts and they'd ring a bell, it was to capture people, right? Wake up, <laughs> sums up, right? That kind of thing. So sometimes when you pray scripture prayers, it's like it alarms you, it helps you come out of your slumber and kind of attend this a little bit more. Here's another great one. This is out of Colossians 1. Uh, based on this, I have been rescued from the dominion of Satan and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. This is a good transfer. <laughs> and, and, uh, or this one, Romans 8, 28, uh, based on it, God will turn things around in my life to work for my good. That is a great prayer to pray because no matter what's going on in your life, you can pull your soul in and say, God, thank you. You're so good. You're even going to take the evil things, the things that, I, that are hurting me right now, and you're going to parlay those into good. You're that big and that wonderful. And one more, uh, first, out of 1 Corinthians 6, I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. I belong to God. Uh, in the uh, article this week on the website, there's about, we listed about 20 of these that you can just jump into and pray. That's beautiful. It can help you. Another aid to boredom is reading written prayers. I used to, as, as an evangelical, I used to think, oh, you can't read a written prayer that's like, you know, rep vain repetition, you know, that, and, and, and it was just not right, you know. I didn't even pray the Our Father, Our Father just, you know, just vain repetition. And not understanding that when Jesus said, don't be vain repetitious, meant literally that you just blather and you're not really thinking about what you're doing. In other words, you're doing something your heart's not in. But some of the written prayers, like the Our Father, uh, we're encouraged as early as the, as the first century Didache, which is this great ancient document that was not so much a theological document as it was just telling Christians how to live. It was like a practical to-do document. And it basically told, told a number of things. It said, pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day just to help people to orient and to keep themselves alert and to help press through the boredom of, of, of spirituality. Uh, but there's other books, written prayer books, the Book of Common Prayer, which is amazing. I mean, there's stuff in it that's not so amazing to me, but there's stuff in it. That, I mean, there's, there's, there's gold in them hills, right? There's some stuff in there that's really good. And, and, and go online, Amazon, go to a bookstore, look for some Christian prayer books. Uh, I got a couple of samples of, of some of my favorites, late ones, like, you know, the little uh, uh, Asian food on a, on, a, on a stick. All right, let me give it to you. Uh, listen to this one. This is beautiful. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me. I wish no more than this, O oh Lord. 
Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord, so I need to give myself to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence because you are my father. I love this. I pray this prayer like every morning for at least the last six months. It's, you know, because I find these prayers and I love them, right? Uh, Here's another one. Uh, God, our father, you know how weak I am. Do not leave me to myself, but take me under your protection. And sometimes I'll just pause and just imagine being cocooned in God's heart. And give me grace to act upon resolutions that are good and holy, like driving under the speed limit during Lent. (laughs) Enlighten my mind with a faith that is robust and cause my will to be filled firmly with hope and with an ardent charity. Strengthen my weakness. Cure the corruption of my heart. Grant that I may overcome the enemies of my soul and that I may make good use of your grace. Isn't that beautiful? Here's one more. Grant us, O Lord, to pass this day. Say this with me. Grant us, O Lord, to pass this day in gladness and peace without stumbling and without stain, that reaching the eventide victorious over all temptations, we may praise you, the eternal God, who are blessed and governed all things world without end. Amen. I love Email me. Uh, my email's in the bulletin, and I'll, I'll send you some copies of these. But look for these. They're like, again, they're like, they're like bells that ring. They, they, they capture your attention. They're a whole lot less boring when it comes to your spirituality. You'll be helped. Okay. Um, and then back to our text. This event that happened, remember the guys are bored, but Jesus starts to shine. And this event is called the transfiguration. Jesus is shining, and it occurred right after Jesus had told them he was going to die. Now, let's read the text again in verse 21 of this chapter. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. Actually, actually, well, let me read it. And he said this. This is where earlier he told them he was going to die. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first time he brings it up with them. And they were, they were a bit freaked out about it for a number of reasons, not the least being that they thought he was the Messiah. Well, we thought you were the Messiah, Why was that important to them? Because the Messiah meant something very specific in the Jewish mind. And the Messiah was never going to be killed. The Messiah was anointed to kill, (laughs) right? In their mind, the Messiah in first century Jewish speak was a person that was going to be a military man. It was a person that was going to be some kind of dominating political figure like David. And there was no way into the world that he would be tortured or killed, not Messiah. So when he says, I'm going to be killed and then raised again, they're going, what? It was freaking them out. To see the expectation of him taking over, that they thought he was going to take over, beat up Rome, send them back to Rome. Beat up the Romans, send them back to Rome. Give us our land back. That's why the Messiah comes, to kick some Roman buttock. Right? That's what their expectation was. That's why in John 6 and 14, you run into texts like this through the Gospels. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. See, the Messiah was also prophetic. Who was to come into the world? And watch, Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him what? 
king by force withdrew again to the mountain. See, they thought, this is Messiah. Let's go, right? Let's go kick some Romans. Okay, here's another one. This is Acts chapter one. This is after Jesus had died and rose from the dead. It said, after his suffering, he showed himself to these guys, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and talked about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't you guys leave Jerusalem, but you wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard about me, uh, heard me speak about, for John baptized you with water, but in a few days, you guys are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they're listening to him. And when they met together, they asked him, okay, we get all that, but Lord, when are we going to do this Roman thing? I mean, are you going to this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, now? See, their whole mindset was, if you're Messiah, you're here to deal with the Romans. Give us our land back. No one had any expectation of a suffering Messiah. And yet that's exactly who Jesus was. When he was crowned as king during his passion with a crown of thorns in absolute mockery, and they're beating those thorns into his head, those, that was actually prophetic. He really was the king of kings and lord of lords, but he was coming in his suffering. Here in our gospel, he had just dropped the bomb that he came to die. And this was not good news for them. And, but when they're on the mountain, he's trying to encourage the ringleaders. John and, and uh, James and Peter were his ringleaders of the 12. And he was encouraging them to see that there was something beyond the physical in him. And so he's there. He's letting them see his glory. He's letting them realize he's not just a human. There's something more. And not only that, but he's letting them see, peek into the glory of the coming resurrection. Because the resurrection was huge. In fact, Jesus had always told them about the resurrection. In one particular place in Matthew 13, he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. So he's talking about when people rose from the dead, that somehow there would be this luminosity. Somehow there would be this glory. Paul refers to the glory that we'll have when we're in our new bodies in eternity future. He says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're not just citizens of this planet. Boy, some of us forget that. Some of us are more Americans than we are Christian. So, we are citizens if is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform transfigure this is an interesting word that keeps repeating he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body see one of the ways that jesus put a seed in their minds that you're going to be changed in resurrection was in this mountain event and he let them see glory that they had not seen he let them realize death was not the end and this gave them hope that even though he was going to die it ain't over baby See, these disciples were capturing a glimpse of Easter. And they were capturing a glimpse of the future resurrection for us. Now, let me point this out because some of us, it eludes us. Um, most Western Christians, American Western Christians, we have been more influenced, and this is an accusation. Please realize it's not with meanness. It just is true. That most of us have been more influenced by the pagan philosopher Plato when it comes to eternity than by the Bible. Now, why do I say that? Because Plato was the one that purported the eternal is more real than the physical world. 
Christianity says they're both real, right? But Plato was the one that said, once you get outside your body, that the body's kind of a thing that makes the soul sleep. The body kind of makes the soul be down. And that once you get out of the body and you get to the eternal, you're really alive. Green is really green. Grass is really grassy. The sun is really bright. And so you get, you know, if you've ever read any stories about people that purportedly had visions or died and went to heaven, you know, you read these things and they talk about how, you know, they played with Jesus and stuff and, you know, everything was so real and the grass was really real and everything was so bright and the smells are so wonderful and it's just so alive, you know, they're so alive, that kind of idea. Actually, that's the result of Plato's input in the Western mind. It's certainly not biblical because in biblical thought, once you leave your body, your soul is kind of a sleepy state. In fact, the Bible often refers to death as sleep. And when you see souls that actually go to heaven that are before God right now, all the people that have died have gone before God right now, you know what they're doing? They're at his throne worshiping and praying something. You know what they're praying? When. In other words, when do we get our bodies back? Because in Christian theology, outside the body of the soul, our souls are less alive than when they're in the body. That we're not fully human unless we're in our bodies. That's why the whole deal for the early Christians and Christian thought all through history up until modern times has been that it's critical that we understand the hope of the Christian is Jesus' return. Why? Because we get our bodies back. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, this whole faith thing we're doing is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. Western Christians, evangelical Christians, need to come awake to the fact that the hope of eternity future is not us leaving our bodies and being with Jesus playing on a playground. But the hope of the church is the fact that you and I one day will have bodies that are resurrected like Jesus and will actually be doing stuff with God for eternity. Read Revelations. It's here we, we sort of, this is central for whatever God wants to do for the universe. That earth is, it's planet central. <laughs> the meeting with, um, that's happening here with Jesus and his disciples and with Moses and Elijah is they were preparing, talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why in Luke 9, back again, it says the two men, Moses and Elijah, they were appearing in glorious splendor. They were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? They were talking about his departure. Why? Why were they talking about his death? Because anytime you you do something hard or something that's very suffering-oriented, you need to prepare You need to be able to set your mind like flint. The Bible says Jesus, in Hebrews it says, Jesus, fixing his eyes on the glory that was to follow, endured the cross. Oftentimes you've got to fix your eyes on a prize before you can endure the suffering. I'm telling you, over and over and over again in the scriptures, we are called as Christ followers to prepare to suffer. 
Most of us think Jesus came into our life to make everything peachy. So that when we stand at the sink washing dishes, there are little birds singing outside and, you know, little squirrels coming up <laughs> and, and, and butterflies flying everywhere and just everything is just wonderful. No, it's not. In fact, to be honest with you, Jesus has come to ruin your life. To arrest you about what you want to think or what you want to do, the motives that you have and the selfishness you're used to living by. He will arrest you and say, there's a new kind of way of living and that often entails suffering and disappointment and God changes things over. It, to, just saying no to sin. I don't know about you, but I like sin. <laughs> it's so easy to do. Rebellion, meanness, following your... You know, I love that. It's hard to say, no, I'm going to be kind. I wanted to give up kindness for Lent. But... No way, God said. Think about bearing the message of Jesus to others. Do you ever notice that when you talk about Jesus, about your heart's going on in your heart, it isn't always met with applause? There's some rejection there. Or think about walking by faith and trying to live larger than you are. It's just easier to just sit back and, and feel like life's being mean to you. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, hard needs preparation. And you, you, it's good to talk it out with trusted others. This little thing we just read is Jesus' small group. Moses and Elijah and Jesus. There he is, and the disciples are, this is his little small group that he has. God, here's the bottom line, and I don't mean to be offensive, but God doesn't bless lazy, riskless people who claim to be victims all the time. Uh, you may have been a victim. There's no question about it. But if you arm yourself with forgiveness and believe in redemption, that God is actually to take the worst in things and turn it around, you can become, in Paul's word, more than a conqueror. Those of you that are old enough, you can look back on the horrible events of your life, the unjust events of your life, and you can see times when you just said, I don't care what has happened, I'm going to trust God and watch what happens there, and times you just seethed in it for time and watch what happened there. It's better to forgive. It's better to stop being lazy. It's, stop, it's better to stop thinking the world owes you something. You're not owed anything. Get up. Buck up, baby. Take control in your life. Trust God. Forgive people. Stop being an idiot. <laughs> Boy, that, I felt the annoying on that. I, <laughs> so annoyed this morning. <laughs> Two more things. I got to shut up. Two more things that emerge out of this before you throw you to the dogs. Uh, the first thing is, is in our text, we bump up against something that Christian thought is called deification. Deification. It, it means being made like God. It literally means being made God, but it, it doesn't really mean that you're becoming God. It means that God is finding release in you. And in the Eastern Orthodox, they really always focused on this idea that the believer does stuff, but they didn't focus on what the believer is supposed to do. They focus more on what God does while the believer does what he or she does. Right, and so we pray, but but what is God doing? <laughs> you know, so we read a text like this to show you the example. Romans twelve. Therefore, I urge you, Paul says, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God's going to do, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Well, we understand we do that in prayer. 
We do that by coming to church. We do that by fasting and things like Lent. We're offering our bodies to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. But what the Orthodox would say is that focus on what God, if we're focusing on God's mercy, something's going to happen here. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. There's that word again, transformed. By the renewing of your mind, the East, the West tended to focus on, you need to renew your mind. The East tended to focus on, hey, renew your mind because God's going to transform you. It was always, they focus on the God side of it. It says, but uh, do not conform to this any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasant, and perfect will. Okay, now here's the point. Interestingly, the word transformed here is the Greek word metamorpho. I'm sure you wanted to know that. Uh, we get our English word what? Metamorphosis from it. Well, it's like the, this bug, caterpillar, you know, goes into its place and it hangs and it's metamorphosized into something else. And so the idea here is that metamorpho means you're changed. That you're changed into something different. And, but what the word actually means, the etymology, the word comes from this notion that what is on the inside comes out to the outside. And so this is the idea of deification, that God somehow has taken residence in our hearts as we present ourselves to him in prayer, as we present ourselves to him in worship, in communion, in community, in service, in fasting, in obedience, when we present ourselves to him in those ways, he begins something in us by renewing our mind. He starts to mess with us and transform us, which is simply him coming out. We're deified. His godness comes out of us. And this same word, interestingly, is the same word used by Matthew and Mark while they're articulating this passage we just read. And it actually uses this word. Here's, here's the example in Mark 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter and John up with him, led him to the high mountain. We just read this. Where they were all alone. There he was. What's the word? Transfigured before them. That's the Greek word metamorpho. In other words, what we're seeing in Jesus is his godness coming out. The, the light, that, it's his godness coming out. And, and what, he, what, what is true for Jesus is true for us. Somehow as we open our lives to God, as we surrender our lives, he comes out of us. He, we begin to participate in his very nature. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, his glory and his goodness, he has given us precious promises so that through them you what? You may participate in what? Whenever you participate in the divine nature, you escape the corruption that's in the world. If you haven't escaped the corruption that's in the world, it isn't because God's looking at you and saying, you bad, horrible person, why aren't you escaping the corruption that's in the world? He doesn't think much of that. He's not trying, he knows you can't escape the corruption that's in the world. If you're living naughty lives, it's because you haven't discovered the divine nature. God's not looking for you to win. God's looking for you to let him win. And we present ourselves to him. We present ourselves to a God who performs. He's not looking for our performance. You know, watch me pray and read my Bible. Don't you think I'm pretty good? He's not, he doesn't care. 
about you. What he's after is you're presenting yourself through prayer, presenting yourself through the fasting, presenting yourself when you come to church, presenting yourself at the communion moment, presenting yourself when you serve somebody because you're looking with an eye to the nature of God that will emerge in you as you do it and you're metamorph food. <laughs> I love that. All right, last thing. Back to our text, Luke 9. It says, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is so good to be here. I mean, I love Mo. I love Elijah. Let's put up some shelters. This is sweet. Let's, you know, they always used to build tabernacles. Anytime something spiritual happened, they'd build an altar. So just they did that to kind of remember. And uh, Luke again says, the guy didn't know what he was talking about. And then it says, when they were speaking, the cloud appeared and enveloped them. They were afraid. <laughs> And uh, it's going to be wonderful to see God, but it's going to freak us out too. They were afraid as they entered into the cloud and God said, this is my son whom I have chose, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. When I um, started pastoring in 1980, I had a season of preparation and I was really praying about, I wanted to be a good pastor. And one in the midst of that time, I felt the Holy Spirit impress me on this one thought. Stay in love with Jesus. Now, the reason that was so important is because if you're in Christianity, you know that, that one of the things that's fun about it is the doctrine and the teaching and understanding. And you get into the Bible, especially when you go to Bible school, and you become like Bible man. And you can kind of respond to stuff and say, well, you know, the word of God says about that and kind of become a, a, you can really fall in love with teaching and fall in love with truth. Well, see, Moses stood for that. He represented the law of God and he was there. And Peter's going, dude, this is great, the law. Elijah stood for the prophets, the law and the prophets. Elijah stood for the power of God. The, how God would move. And, and the other things that I, when I was starting, I said, God, how do you want to use me? What are my gifts? How do you want to move through my life? And how do I, how do I feel your spirit and lead people to tent, sense your spirit? I was into the law. And the, I mean, I wanted the word and I wanted the Holy Ghost and I wanted to have an experience. And Jesus was kind of over here. Because the reality is, Jesus is kind of boring. I mean, you read him, he's a little opaque. And, and to say just in love with Jesus, I mean, you, you know, you do that when you first come to Christ, but then you mature. And you get into the Lord, the Holy Ghost. You know, that's a, it's a charismatic. <laughs> and I remember when God spoke to me, he said, listen, stay in love with Jesus. And which kind of, and the imagery I had was peripheral vision and focus. You know, if I'm looking at that, there's a, at, the, at the booth back there, I can still see you guys over here as far as right there. I can see my fingers here. So I can see all of this. I can't see any back here can't see here but right oh i see these and all this as i'm focused on that booth and what god spoke to my heart if you stay focused on jesus you'll see everything else you need to see truth miracles god's provision healing uh you know ideas of holiness you'll see all that uh, but if you start focusing on miracles all of a sudden jesus prompts peripheral you start seeing things God never intended you to see, which means you're weird. And you stop seeing things God wanted you to see, which means you're error. 
If you start focusing, oh, I just believe God wants to prosper. Just God wants to prosper. So then Jesus becomes kind of a nagging little side version over here. Then you're into weirdness over here, which means you're into some greed and manipulation. It's amazing to me, people that focus so much on prosperity, how they can justify funny business practices. I've actually had people, I actually heard a kid going to Bible school with me that said, said they were selling this guy this car. He said, man, praise God. He said, I sold it for $1,500. He said, it was only worth about five. I said, you sold it for $1,500? Praise God, you got blessing me. I said, you're a liar. You're going to hell. (laughs) 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 I didn't really say it. I just thought it. But um, here's the deal. You stay focused on Jesus and everything else makes sense. Stay in love with Jesus. That's why the scripture says that when Moses and Elijah and Jesus were there and Peter gets up and says, oh, let's do something for everybody. Let's really celebrate you, Jesus, but really on the prophets. And all of a sudden they're gone and the cloud comes and God says, this is my son, hear him. And when the cloud left, the scripture says, all they saw was Jesus alone. Why? Because Jesus embodies Salvation, the law, the prophets. God's word is teaching, and the way God's move is always in Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus. That's all I got.